You're listening to the Banner Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more information, visit us online at thebannerchurch.com. Awesome. Well, yeah, yesterday was fun. You guys, I, I hope you guys enjoyed it, those of you who went. Um, I really want to encourage you, uh, our good friends, the Frankies that run United Phoenix. Uh, they have a mission not only to uh, once a month on that Saturday engage in ministry in different places, but also to inspire you to live daily and, and to be inspired by those places that you go to and to commit to, to maybe caring or, or being a part or joining with to get inspired. It's the same reason we do Love the Block. We don't do love the block just to love that block. We want you to feel empowered to love your block. And that block might actually look like an office building, or that block might look like your school, or whatever it is. Our goal is to inspire you to say, hey, ministry is not as hard as we're pretending it is, you know, to do, right? Like, it's possible for you to do ministry in your context, and also to step into context that might be uncomfortable for you. And to minister to others and to care for others. And man, it is really a beautiful thing, amen. So I, I just, I was so struck by that. I, I was uh, really encouraged. I look forward to seeing you on Thursday nights. And I look forward to seeing you hopefully again. And we want to continue to uh, join with Unite Phoenix and all they do. Uh, and it's amazing. The Frankies, you guys just, you're amazing. It's, it's crazy. They like minimize it because it's normal for them. But... Uh, it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing what they do. I, uh, at Banner Church, you know, we one of our core values is honor. And so I just wanted to do something today. I want to honor somebody who's very, very special uh, to my, my wife and myself, who uh, is really crucial in defining a lot of the culture here and what happened. So I'm going to invite, even though she was just up here, she's probably holding a baby. I'm going to invite Gillian. Where is she? If she would just come up on stage. Can we celebrate Gillian today? Those of you who don't know, Gillian is our small groups director, but she does so much more than that. As you now know, she she also is a powerful worship leader. Uh, I loved you guys leading today. You did so awesome. You can come onto the stage. It's okay. Uh, she also hates being the center of attention, which is an ironic quality for a worship leader. Um, <laughs> but I, I love Gillian, and I, I just wanted to celebrate her and what she's done because Gillian leads our small groups ministry. She has led it through the difficult time of COVID and all that that involves. She, she never asked for favors or recognition. She's so faithful. She led organizing all of you to go partner with United Phoenix. She does all of this, and she just is constantly excited. She uh, obviously moved here from Washington with David and their family, giving up being near uh, their birth family to be here with their church family and investing their lives into that. And if you guys have made that move, you know that's a huge sacrifice. And so we honor that as well because it's big to make a huge leap of faith and believing what God wants to do. Amen. And so I just wanted to honor Gillian because we love you and we appreciate you. And so would you do me a favor? Would you just stand with me this morning and just reach your hands towards Gillian? We want to pray for her and honor her life and her leadership. God, we are so thankful for this amazing woman of God as she pastors in this church and her ministry and her anointing. God, we thank you for the blessing of putting Gillian and David and their whole family, God, on our team and as part of our family. I thank you that we are united under you, Holy Spirit. And God, I thank you for how she has moved so mightily in such powerful ways. Have You have used her for the kingdom. So I pray right now a blessing upon her life. God, we at Banner Church pray a blessing upon Gillian. God, we pray that where she walks, that you would give her the land under her feet. We pray that you would protect her. We pray you would walk with her mind and her body and her spirit. I pray because of her faithfulness to you, I pray a greater outpouring because I believe you want to do even greater things through her ministry, through her pastorship here at this church. I thank you for her and I pray, God, we know that this is going to be a powerful year for how you want to use her. So I pray just open up the heavens and pour it out on her. Thank you for every person that she has blessed here at this church. And I pray that, God, you would rally women of God and men of God around her to support her and to lift her hands and to empower her and David, God, to strengthen them and to encourage him, God. May we pour the love back into this incredible family that they continue to pour out to us. So we honor her and we thank you for her. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, amen. Can we sell? Yeah, come on, let's celebrate, y'all. Let's wake it up. There we go. Awesome. You can be seated. Awesome. You guys can be done. I guess that counts as the prayer, huh? 
Awesome. Well, thank you, worship team. <laughs> they didn't know I was going to do that, but, you know, sometimes you got to mix it up. Uh, we really are very blessed at this church to have some incredible leaders. It's crazy to think uh, what God uh, continues to do. I was, like, looking at the stage just feeling so proud, thinking of Patrick up here leading worship. I was thinking back to when y'all first came here, just like, man, long journey, huh, man? Megan's back there online somewhere, or she's somewhere. Where is she? I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. Nick. I knew Nick when he was like 18. Seven, how old are you? 19? No, I know how old you are now. <laughs> when we met. I mean, it's just cool to see what God's doing. Amen. Gillian, for one very brief moment, was in my youth ministry. As I began being a youth pastor, she went to college. I'm like this very, it's like two ships passing in the night. So I've known Gillian for a long time, too. It's amazing to see just incredible ministers. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but you're at a church that is full of people who deeply love you and love on you and spend their time loving you, not because they get paid exorbitant amounts of money, but because they believe God has a plan and purpose in your life. So I want to encourage you, please bless and love those people so they keep growing here and we keep having a strong team moving the mission forward. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. Let's all do this. Let's practice it together. I want us to give. I know it's been a long week. I know technically it might be a holiday for you tomorrow. We'll see how it goes. Maybe, maybe try it with your boss. See if he lets you get it off. Maybe you won't. But I feel like we need a little bit. We need a little bit of like a little oomph today. So we're going to all do this on the count of three. Hit me with like your best amen. Never been to church before, but you're like, you know what? I've seen movies. I've seen this. I know what. Okay, here we go. We're going to on the count of three. Hit me with your best like amen, right? Loud and proud. Can we try that? Okay, let's try it. One, two, three. Okay, that was good. <laughs> that happens in the service. I might get scared. Okay, <laughs> that was good. Good. Uh, man, it's, it's, been a, it's been a long week, if I'm going to be honest. Uh, I, I was so thankful to be a part of Unite, Unite Phoenix on Saturday and love the block on Thursday because I needed it. Uh, I don't know what this week has been like for you, but man, I needed it. I uh, started the week watching the Super Bowl in uh, the bathroom. Because I was deciding who was going to win the question of do I have food poisoning or do I have the stomach flu? And uh, I, it was a tie. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, blanket over my head, watched that. So I was sick for a few days, so I'm going to say stomach flu. Uh, and then the very next day, or we had to put our family dog down. And so it was just, you know, it was things, little things, big things that kind of stack up that kind of leave you, like, a, as the week goes on, a little prickly. You know what I'm talking about? Like, somebody better not complain to me, or else, you know, I'm going to throw hands, right? <laughs> I was listening to a song the other day. It says, don't try, Je or try Jesus, but don't try me, because I throw hands. And I was like, this is my song this week. <laughs> but uh, I, I needed love, uh, love the Block. I needed United Phoenix this week to really focus my heart, my attention again, back on who God is and what he does. And that's really the amazing thing about ministering, is it really gets your perspective right. Get your heart right. It gets your focus right. And as much as we're suffering, it doesn't minimize our suffering, but it maximizes how good our God is. And it gives us a greater perspective. So I really want to encourage you to engage in that because it is really, really beautiful. But uh, we're, we're in our Beatitude series called The Better Blessing. Have you enjoyed it so far? You guys been with us? Good, good, good. Uh, I, I really enjoy the Beatitudes, and we're taking a little different approach. We're not going necessarily... Um, uh, line by line as we're going uh, thought by thought as it's presented in this sermon on the mount specifically in the beatitudes and as we begin today as we jump into kind of this next section we'll be in matthew 5 but i want to ask you a question and the question is this how do you picture jesus Maybe you uh, never grown up in church, maybe you're joining us on, you just clicked a link because it was like the next thing, you know, after whatever you were watching, and uh, it's like, how do you picture Jesus? You might not have um, been even to this kind of service, but you might have in your mind a picture of Jesus, what he looks like, right? Just, maybe just in like a Western context, right? Like you've seen a, a photo. Maybe you had like that aunt who had pictures of Jesus, right, everywhere. So there, there's a look, right? That Jesus has a look, Right? Someone shout out, what are some of the features of that Jesus? You know the one I'm talking about. He's got a beard. He's got the long hair. It's like a, it's like a hazelnut, chestnut brown. It's, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's got body to it. It's layered. You guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Like, not 90s grunge hair Jesus. We're talking proper 80s post-hockey flow Jesus hair. Right? Not dirty 70s hippie. We're talking flow. Okay? And he's usually like what? He's like holding a lamb, right? That's a feature. He's holding some kind of, some kind of 
animal, usually a lamb, because that makes sense with the whole thing, right? Uh, he's usually quite white. Uh, that is usually in those pictures. I'm not saying he is. I'm saying in the pictures, right? He's Semitic, but I'm saying in the pictures, he's usually got this very uh, strong visual. I picked the wrong week to cut my hair. This would have helped. Um, <laughs> But there's like a certain, there's a certain thing about him who looks very gentle and, right? Have you seen this, Jesus? Okay. Maybe some of you, you have that, um, you have that grandma, you know, you go to their house and they have the, the guest room and above the bed is like this, this crucifix. And so maybe you didn't know who Jesus was, but you're like, I don't know who this is, but grandma hated him, right? He's just, he's just this rough looking dude on a cross, bloody. You're like, what? is this. No one ever thought this, just me. Okay, cool. I will go to hell alone then. Um, <laughs> but th this is sometimes a perspective. We don't know. We're just like, okay, this is kind of how I picture him. Because we honestly, like, a lot of us, we see Jesus based off the context we've maybe witnessed him portrayed, right? So uh, maybe you grew up in a home where that was a very strict religious home, and so how you see Jesus or how you see God is very strict and very enforcing. So when you picture Jesus, you picture someone who's just over people altogether, right? He just doesn't. He's not a—God he, he, is, like, frustrated, right? We're just sinners in the hand of an angry God, Right, he's just mad at us, and so that's. And, or maybe you you were reacted to that idea, and so you uh, you kind of see Jesus as this free spirit. You really embrace the hair. You picture him in a Woodstock vibe. He's just like, welcome all, come as you are, do whatever you want. Right? Because a lot of our context informs how we see Jesus. Are you with me? And how we understand Jesus? Uh, because humans, you know, we're kind of naturally reactive. It's interesting. Uh, where I grew up, just north of Seattle. Um, and in the surrounding area of Seattle, there's a very reactive movement to how we picture Jesus. So right when I kind of started ministry, there was a big push to see Jesus as, like, tough, right? And, like, specifically, like, see him as, like, rough. Like, Jesus, all I see here is, like, Jesus is the ultimate fighter. Christian is the ultimate fighting championship. I just watched the UFC last night. I'm not knocking it. Like, I, I box. I, I get it. But there was this imagery of, like, Jesus is tough. He's a fighter. He's like, he's not a wimp. He'd be in the Christian bookstore, like, burning it down. And, like, he hates soft things. And, like, he doesn't like lambs. He would kick a lamb because he's tough. Right? Are you with me? Right? Like, Jesus has, like, a shaved head, and he drinks IPAs. Right? And you know this, Jesus. Double IPA. If that's not an imperial stout, you're not getting into heaven. Some of you didn't grow up in Seattle. You're like, what is he talking about? <laughs> like, I can refer you to a couple places after this. Trust me. I think they all live here now anyways. But the reality is there was this perspective on uh, Jesus that he was like, no, no, no. He's not a whip. He's not the lamb. He's not the long hair. We got to show him as like, yeah, man, he's got it. And the, I think the great irony in all this is he's kind of both and yet none of those descriptions simultaneously. Because Jesus is tough. Jesus is enduring. Jesus did suffer greatly. Jesus did endure. And you're right, Jesus did cleanse the temple and flip tables. You're right. And you're right, he had a confidence. He stood up against people who were speaking things and putting things down and, and twisting the law. He was a strength to him. He was there at creation as part of the Trinity, right? He is part of the triune God. The word was at the beginning when the earth was spoken to existence, when the universe was mightily created, and yet that same Jesus knelt down into the mud, picked up mud, put it in someone's eyes, and they were healed. That same Jesus said, let the little children come to me. That same Jesus said, I'm meek and lowly. I love that we must wrestle with that understanding of Jesus. I love it. He is strong. He is tough. But he's also welcoming and embracing and compassionate. Because when he saw the crowds, he was moved in his inner being. He was compassionate towards him. He, he longed. This is the Jesus that, that wept. This is the Jesus that, that hurt when his best friend passed away. You know what it means about Jesus just felt real emotions like you and I. He was real. And then I think so often we project our, our personality or our desires on Jesus, or maybe we try to respond to some hurts on how maybe the church or, or maybe in your family someone has talked about God or taught you about Jesus, so we respond and we try to go the other way. If it was too, too lax and that was abused, we go really strict. If it was too strict and that was abused, we go really lax. So you're still with me. You understand the pattern? 
Okay, it's, it's reactive, it's responsive. But the real question and the good question is, who is Jesus? What does Jesus really look like? What does he really look like? I mean, I think he looked like a 30-year-old Jewish man in Judea. But I mean, like, in character, what did he look like? That's what the Beatitudes are. The Beatitudes are the character of Christ displayed in his kingdom for his followers to follow, hence followers. What's interesting is, as much as we sometimes as a culture wrestle with the identity of Jesus and the understanding of Jesus, uh, his culture also wrestled with him. They were not expecting Jesus, right? His culture was not expectant. They were expectant of a Messiah, but they were not expectant of Jesus. They were waiting for a messianic king. They were waiting for somebody who was going to take back the land. They were waiting for somebody who was going to chase all the pagans out of the country, and they were going to finally have their country back. And when you look at the history of the nation leading up to this, a nation under oppression, a nation under rule, did you know for the hundred years leading up to Jesus' return, there were 12 messianic revolts. Messianic revolts and revolutions. By that, I mean there were revolutions that rose up against Rome, that rose up against whatever ruling power was over them, over these different schisms and Greeks and Romans and all these things that happened. There were 12 of them at that time that came up. Guess what happened? They came up. They rose up in power. They did something in the military. They rode into Jerusalem like Judah Maccabee and the Maccabee revolts. The Hebrew hammer rides into Jerusalem after winning his uh, after winning his great battle. They say Hosanna, Hosanna. They lay palm branches at his feet. Not, I'm not I'm not to Jesus yet. I'm still in the Hebrew hammer. Hebrew hammer rides in, goes into the temple, purifies the temple, takes it back. And you know what happens? He dies. And you know what happens after that? Nothing. Because when you're not God and you die, you, you die. You're dead. You're dead. You're done. You're dead. Without God, you're dead. That happens 12 times. So it kind of makes sense when the Jewish leaders are like, well, you know what? Let's let them work this thing out. Because if it's just a bunch of made-up things, once they start, you know, once the Romans really start laying into them, like, they're going to be over it. You know how they knew that? Because it had happened 12 times every decade. Someone would pop up and be like, I'm the Messiah. Then they'd ride in, and then they would, you know, get cut in half or crucified on a tree or burnt alive or something. And all the disciples were like, no, I'm not dying for that. And then they would disperse, and they would come back later. This is why Christianity is unusual. Are you with me? See, we think they're like, oh, this is very normal. No, this was unusual <laughs> to build a religion off no military might. That was an unusual thing. But that's because Jesus was so different, and he looked so different. See, they expected a messianic king. They didn't expect the suffering servant and the messianic king to be the same together in Jesus Christ. That was a surprise. They were expecting military power. What they really wanted was peace and freedom. Any oppressed people wants that peace and freedom. But what they got is Jesus Christ. They got something that looked different. They got an inheritance that looked different. They got a blessing that looked different. If we were honest, we're still wrestling with it today. We're still wrestling with Jesus the Messiah. We're still wrestling with the inheritance he promises, with the blessing he promises, because it doesn't often look like we think, and yet it is so much better than we could ever imagine. It truly is the better blessing. So I want to look at it today. If you brought your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. If not, if you don't have your Bible, don't worry. The words are going to be on the screen here in just a second. It says this. Matthew 5, verse 2. It says, and he began to teach them, meaning Jesus began to teach his disciples. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the, what words right there? Blessed are the, blessed are the, for they will inherit the, okay, let's, let's hear that again, because I want you to get these two words in your mind. Blessed are the, for they will inherit the, awesome. Last week we talked about poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? I'm not quizzing you, I'll tell you. 
It's this idea of, of spiritual poverty, of recognizing that I have a, a debt of sin and shame that I can't pay myself, right? Like, I recognize that I am a sinner, that I have a debt I can't pay, and yet God, in His great mercy, pays my debt. That He is a friend of sinners. Then in the moment I recognize my deep spiritual poverty, Christ meets me in that moment. And His love displayed on the cross is there for me. Are you still with me? It's there for me in that moment. And I'm thankful for that forgiveness. And I received that adoption in as a son and as a daughter of God. And verse 4 says something interesting. It'd feel unusual uh, in the way that it's almost uh, relayed here is that after saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom, it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's an interesting phrase. Do you ever look at the Beatitudes and you're like, Why this order? Why are these things being said this way? Well, importantly, it is true that those who mourn, like the loss of a loved one, um, hurt and pain, will be comforted. That is true, and there's some great scriptures that speak on that, right? Uh, Psalms talking about God is near the brokenhearted. He gathers his lambs in his arms, right? A lot of scriptures on that. But specifically, in this moment, what he's talking about is in response to what he said before and will say after. That's called context, right? So he says, blessed are, the, blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty. Blessed are those who, who say, oh my goodness, God, I recognize the depth of my sin and my shame, and I need you, God. He says, blessed are those who mourn over the state of their souls. And specifically, he's talking to the Jewish people, right? He's talking to the Jewish people. He came first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And he's saying, listen, blessed are you that you mourn over the state of Israel. That you mourn over the state, that you were a promised people, and yet here you sit in oppression. Here you are in exile. But he says, listen, when you mourn that, when you realize, oh my gosh, how far we have fallen, how much we, we have abandoned, how, how much we have rebelled, Christ meets you in that moment as your Savior and says, I encounter you with my love in that exact moment. And he says, because Christ encounters you with the beauty of the resurrection, you will be comforted. Now, in Matthew 5, they don't know that yet because he's, he's still with them. But he's saying, listen, when you mourn over the state of your soul, you were comforted by the truth of God with you. So he says, those who mourn will be comforted. Right? Grief is the feeling. Mourning is the action. It's recognizing, listen, there, there's something missing in my heart. When you make that connection, there's something missing in my heart. I need you, Lord. You are not left stranded in the desert. God meets you in that moment. If you sense that today, man, there is a depth of my soul where I'm hurting and in pain. And I recognize, man, I, I'm a sinner. I, I have sinned. I pursued selfishness and pride in myself and the lust of the flesh. But man, I, I need a Savior. I need God to do a miracle in my life. I need hope for my future and healing for my past. God does not leave you in that moment. He meets you. He will meet you today in that moment, in this place right now, in your seat. You don't got to wait for an altar call. You don't got to wait for a minute. Literally right now, God will meet you, encounter you with the love of the Savior who died on the cross for you. That's how amazing He is. He will come to you in your morning. Longing for a savior. Remember, uh, the Jews are thinking they're getting this military Messiah. Because when it says inherit the earth, you're thinking, yeah, inherit by force. Right? Because how did they inherit the land the first time? By a super dope army. It's bringing down walls with trumpets. You roll into a nation having destroyed them in song, you're doing good. Right? <laughs> That's called psychological warfare. <laughs> you come in and you're like, playing goodness of God seven times and the Taliban explodes, right? <laughs> we, maybe we should try it. I'm just saying. That's important. There's something that happens there. So like, yeah, that's how it's going to happen again. We're going to come in. Now, what they didn't realize is it's actually the presence of God that was doing this. It was not the sword. It was the Lord. It was, ah, that rhymed. I didn't like that. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was God coming into that space. It was God encountering in that space and giving them the promise and Jesus says, okay, here's how you're going to inherit the earth, meekness. Man, Jesus really knew. I, I think maybe one of his understated qualities is his ability to disperse a crowd. Right? I'll tell you, like, what you don't tell a bunch of oppressed people. Like, 
Okay, here's how we're going to inherit the land. Here's how you're going to be free. I'm not even waiting 1,500 years from this. Be meek. They're going to be like, you're an idiot, and they're going to leave. That's what's going to happen. Are you with me? How many of you would stick around for the rest of that sermon? Yeah, a bunch of white people. <laughs> but that's his, that's his attitude, right, of like, okay, here's how you're going to inherit it. you got to be meek. And the people are like, I'm sorry, what? And, and I want to give us a little credit here. I think it's okay for us to wrestle with the idea of meekness. I was talking with someone between services, and I was like, this hits me in the personality because I am not a meek person. I am like, right now, this level of emotion you see coming out on stages, I'm at 50% right now, right? So it's hard for me not to be an aggressive person. So can I say, can we wrestle through it together? Is that okay? Can we be okay as Christians that we're just not perfect at every sermon that comes down the line? And we got to wrestle through some stuff. We're like, you know what? Like, I do want to fight for things, but I also want to be meek. And I got to wrestle with what that means. Amen? I got to walk through what that means in my life. So what does it mean to be meek? Being poor in spirit, that, that was about me, right? That, that's about you. That's, that's about how you're living, specifically how you're evaluating yourself. But meekness is unique because it's between you and others. Meekness manifests in your relationship with others. Uh, are there any fans of the show Forged in Fire right here? Okay, come on. Be honest. Okay, good. Four of us. We're going to ride this ride together, four people. Good. Hey, do you guys know what I'm talking about, Forged in Fire? You guys have the History Channel? Okay, I watched like two thing, uh, three things. Football, Grit TV, and Forged in Fire. And now old boxing videos on YouTube because I found out I could YouTube on my TV. I'm, I'm, I'm old at heart. <laughs> Finding out what apps are, all these things. Anyways, uh, I I love Fortune and Fire. And when they make a blade, I just watched one. It was the military special. And they had the different branches of the military, and they all made a made this cool knife and then like a sword. And when they make it, they have to heat it up and then they dip it in the oil and, and it cools it down. And then they have to run a file over it. Why do they run the file over it? Someone shout it out because you know to test if it's hard. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the four people who also watch the show are like, nah, man, they knew. You knew. We knew. Fortune Fire fans can join the forum later um, to test if it's hard. And then they take it, and they take it, and they put it in this, like, pressure heat kiln. I'm, gonna, I'm teaching you guys how to make weapons now. They, they put it in this heat kiln, and it tempers the blade, puts it under pressure and heat, and it reduces it slowly down in this state so that it gets really, really hard. It, it's meant to temper it. Okay, I think we can nail this one, though. Okay. How do you know if your blade has a good temper on it? How are you going to know? Someone. Test it. Test it. See? Yes. Thank you. You knew. <laughs> I mean, you were in first service, so it's kind of cheating. Um, <laughs> you test it, right? How do you know if your blade, how do you know if you have a good temper? You got to test it, right? If you have a, have a sword and you hit it against something and it breaks, you have a bad temper, right? Half of you that just understood the English language are fired up now. <laughs> See, you didn't laugh now, but later when you're out having drinks with some friends, you're going to bring it up and be like, okay, you guys want to know what a good temper is? You got to test the blade. They're going to be like, what? Then you're going to know it was good because that was good. Uh, but the reality is you have to test the temper of what you have, right? If you meet resistance and immediately break, you have a bad temper. You need to be able to meet resistance. So in order to meet resistance, to test your temper, to test if you have a good temper, you have to be around people. I'll tell you who, who will test your temper. Children. <laughs> I'm like, uh, yeah, that's pretty much that. Uh, people, people in your office. But meekness requires that you would be around people to test your temper. Are you with me still? You must be around people to test your temper. To push against it, to create resistance. Meekness requires that. And so in a way, meekness is a broader attribute because it's not just about you. It's about you in relationship to others. It's about me in relationship to the people around me. It's about me in relationship to the people who bring resistance into my life. Amen? Some friction, some collision. How do I respond there? That will define meekness. If I'm a hermit, I'm not meek. I'm just alone. I don't have a chance. But how do I do with the people who, like, think really different than me? Who are, come up against me? Who I have a choice on how I respond to? 
who think different, vote different, act different, believe different than me? How, how, how do I do in that situation? And that's where meekness comes into play. So let's talk about meekness. I'll give you some attributes of meekness here. To be meek is to be humble. This is so important. If you're writing notes, I encourage you to write down, to be meek is to be humble. This is kind of the starting point. Like you can't have any, like I told you at the beginning, the starting point of the Beatitudes is this idea of being poor in spirit. You can't do the rest until you start there. This is the reality of being meek. You cannot do any of these other cool sounding things until you first start out as being humble. The rest of them will just go sour if you go from there. We have to be humble. I think of uh, Jesus when he's at this Sabbath dinner, and uh, everybody's there. He's there with some religious leaders, and they're gathered around a table. And have you ever, uh, have you ever been, like, to a conference meeting or a work meeting in a very competitive work environment, and everybody's, like, trying to get the seat at the head of the table? You know what I'm talking about, right? Where everyone's trying to find that space. Come on, competitive work environment people. You know what I'm talking about, right? Everyone's got there. Like, Lord, help you if there's swivel chairs. I have lived this life. Maybe I'm just really, really competitive. But this is how my brain thinks. I was like, I'm getting to the head of the table. I'm getting the best spot. I want to be right there. It's like, Lord, help you if you leave to go to the bathroom. Because I'm going to swivel chair around you, and I'm right there. <laughs> it's like, we kick your chair to the back of the room. Like, sorry, you should have done bathroom breaks because we're adults, right? Like, you know when to go to the bathroom. And so I'm at the head of the table. That's my personality. Hey, just be honest. Anyone else like this? Come on. Good. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you. But there's something about this where we're wrestling to be at the head, and Jesus sees this at a Sabbath dinner, and he says this. Uh, Luke 14 says, When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. He says, When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. It says, but when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. It says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Here's the thing, when we're prideful people, and again, I, I'm, I'm speaking, I've wrestled through this just like everybody else. I like to just be honest with you from the platform that I'm a real human being that also wrestles through these things. I also feel this tension to get a place at the table, to, to, to try to establish honor and value and worth. I understand it, but like, I want to prove that I'm worth it. I want to prove the people wrong who said I wasn't worth it. I want to prove that I can make it. I want to prove the people wrong who said I couldn't make it. I want to prove them wrong, and I want to prove myself right. I want to prove myself. I want to prove it. I want to show. I want to make it happen. I want to win. I want to be successful. I want to get it. I want to be first in. I want to be last out. Right? That's, I want that in my life and in my personality. The hard part is it's so exhausting. A humble person says, listen, my, my place at the table, my honor, my value, my purpose, that comes from God. That comes from the Lord. I don't have to prove my value and my worth. God has proven that on the cross through his son, Jesus Christ. I don't, you know what that does to me? Makes me just go, <sighs> deep breath. Somehow you just need to take a deep breath today. And just say, you know what? I want to take steps. I want to achieve. I want to go to this level. I want to do this. But you know what? I need to just humble myself. There's a war inside of me of pride that's going on, that's pushing, pushing, to say, I got to be greater. I got to be more. But I need to humble myself. See, pride is being consumed with yourself. Constantly trying to prove your value, your purpose, trying to prove you're cool, smart, trying to prove you're not what they said they are. You're trying to do all that. You got to get that place at the table. You got to get there first. You got to get there fast. You got to make it happen. You know, you, you have to, you can't show, you know, that, that you're hurting to your friends because then, you know, they're going to take a step. You can't be honest with your coworkers. You can't take a day off because if you do, then somebody else is going to go there. You can't have Sabbath or rest because then what if somebody jumps your place on the team, right? Like, we live in a state of pride. It manifests itself different ways, but in reality, it's just a lot of insecurity. But the humble person says, listen, I trust in the Lord, and I'm just thankful to be here in the kingdom, right? Like, no, I'm not fighting for a spot at the table. Thank you, Jesus, for inviting me to the table. You know what? I'll sit wherever you want. 
You want me to sweep the floors while you're eating? That's fine. You know what? Throw me a couple ATL wings while I'm over here, and I'll be okay. Right? <laughs> I'm just going to be over here. I'm just happy to be here. Sometimes I just need to have a I'm happy to be here attitude in the kingdom of God, right? I'm the least, and I'm okay with that. Like Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. That's that poverty in spirit. It informs our perspective. It says, listen, I don't need to be great. I need to be humble. And when I'm humble, God will take care of the rest. My favorite leaders are the most humble. That's my favorite leaders. Listen. Young men and, men and women of God, you're trying to become the next generation of leaders. Listen to me. We don't need more people on stage. We need more people in the streets being Jesus to others. We don't need more YouTube channels. We don't need more Instagram brands. We don't need more influencers. We need more compassionate hearts of Jesus out in the streets caring for others. That's what we need. We need more humble people. We need more people willing to sweep floors, hold open doors for somebody. We need more people willing to evaluate themselves and really understand and just be thankful and be in that space and say, listen, you know what? If we're going to build anything, it's on the foundation of humility, and we're going to trust that God exalts. Because I guarantee if you look at the people that exalt themselves, they will eventually fall. If you look at the people who God exalts, they will stay lifted up. They will rejoice because they're humble. We need humility. Not only that, to be meek is to be gentle. Somebody say gentle. Humility is kind of the soil of which gentleness grows. It nurtures it. But gentleness is important. See, when our hearts are softened and lowly and are humble, our actions will be gentle. Do you know anybody? I mean, obviously not, not you because you're here at church holiday weekend, so you're not this. I'm not this, of course. Uh, but let's say someone else, hypothetically, you might know is this way. Do you know anybody like harsh, arrogant, maybe a little brash? That person that's just like, you take me as I am, right? This is just who I am. How do you feel bringing those people your feelings and your heart? Yeah, whoever just said no, you are right. <laughs> How do you feel bringing up your troubles, opening your heart to them? You don't. Why? Because that's not where we feel. It, it, it's just so obviously conflicting to the reality of compassion. This harshness and brashness and not gentleness. But then when we look at Jesus, what do we see when we look at Jesus? Who do we see when we look at Jesus? Here's what I see, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what I don't see here? I don't see weakness. Because it takes strength to bear someone's burden. It takes strength to go to the cross. It takes strength to long suffer with somebody. Weak people get in and get out with anger. Weak people get in and get out with a harsh word. Strong people endure patiently. Jesus says, come to me. My burden is like, I am gentle and humble. So I want to encourage you, man, if Jesus is gentle and humble, if we're going to paint a picture of Jesus, forget the long hair, forget the lamb, forget, you know, whatever, maybe he's swole because he's been making carpentry, whatever it is. Look at the fact that he is gentle and he is humble. And that's what I should be. And it should stir us a little bit when we start talking or posting online, right? I see it all the time. Uh, you know, people are so dumb. I see, like we have this trend right now where we think that everybody's stupid except for us. Like, I'm a genius and everyone else is dumb. It's like, no. Like, people, anytime someone's like, people are so dumb, I'm like, that's kind of mean-spirited because I'm people and you're people. It's like, well, not you. It's like, well, I mean, but also, yeah, because I'm kind of dumb sometimes, right? Aren't we all? People are so dumb. Like Christians are so this. Christians are so that. Christians are so, I'm like, oh my gosh, like what, what are we doing here? And I get it. You could say whatever you want under the rights of the residency of this country. You, you have that right to say it. My question is, what should we do as people who long to reflect the character of Christ? Who should we look at? Is there a better way? Is there a better blessing? than just what I have a natural law given right to. Philippians 2, 3 tells us. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Sorry, <clears throat> which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It says, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus says, listen, if you want to be my disciples, do what I do. Be gentle. Not, not weak. Gentle. Gentleness takes strength. It takes strength to be gentle. It takes self-control to be gentle. Right? Just do what I do. Christ says, if you want to be the greatest, become the lowest. Think about that. The God of the universe came down to earth, knelt down, embraced children. That's powerful. That's power. That's strength. The meek are gentle because they're humble like Christ. But to be meek is also to be patient. Somebody say patient. That's one of my least favorite words. Me and Lucy, we have the least, same least favorite word. But what I mean is being patient to give offense or take offense. Can I ask a question? When did mistakes stop being, like, mistakes? Right? Everywhere I look, it's like cancel culture. You make a mistake now, you're done. Can I say, if you make a mistake here at this church, you are welcome here. Because we all make mistakes. If you feel like, man, I'm broken, I've made some serious mistakes, perfect. I got just the person for you. His name is Jesus. He's going to transform your life. Right, like, how dare we not allow you to make mistakes when that's what brought us all here? But we live in this cancel culture that's so annoying. I'm just so thankful to the Lord. I'm not even, like, uh, remotely famous at all because if so, I would have blown it by now. Be like, local pastor canceled for something he said on stage literally moments ago. <laughs> I said some first things in first service. I was like, don't put that on YouTube. There, people can get mad. <laughs> right? <laughs> because we don't let people make mistakes. We don't let people just say, like, listen, I make a mistake. We get so offended. We have zero patience with people. We get so offended as if, like, we're not all constantly saying things that literally anybody at any moment could take offense to if they were just weak enough to choose to, right? We're all so offended all the time. I'm offended by this. This has triggered me. It's like, or, or you could just grow up. Some of you just got offended. <laughs> The reality is we all get angry, right? We're all human. What am I angry people like? Give me a, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Just push that deep down. That's the reality, though. But we, we struggle with anger because anger is a feeling, right? Is it a sin to feel the emotion of anger when something happens? I, I don't think so, but I want to be careful. Because... When we respond to anger, when we allow it to take root in our heart and our mind and influence how we respond, that is a sin, to respond, to act in anger. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let sun go down on your anger. See, people will make you angry, right? But how do I respond in my anger? How do I respond to the hurt and the pain that people have given? Do I give offense? Do I take offense? This is one of the things I had to learn as a pastor. Growing up, I was good at verbal jabs. You know what I'm talking about? Like someone thought they would be bringing their best shot to me. This is how I grew up. I was short, and I had to be quick, and I had to be quick with my words, and so then I had to be even more quick, quick with my feet. Um, is that if someone came in, they brought their best jab, and I was like, nope, like almost immediately back out. And I learned as a pastor, that's not what you do. Almost immediately, I learned that. I was like, no, you have to put on your Kevlar, right? You have to be able to take the hit a little bit there. You can't respond. That's the question. Will I give offense or will I take offense? I love Proverbs 19. It says, a person, person's wisdom yields patience, and it's to one's own glory to overlook an offense. I heard the phrase, little pots boil, or a little, a little pot soon boil over. Anyone know anybody like this? It's like, you got to walk on eggshells because they're always offended. It's like, no matter what you say, they're going to get offended about. They're going to get hurt about. They're going to get upset about. You walk around, they're just so easily, they're so insecure that they're so easily offended. I mean, this, of course, of course not me. Uh, but, you know, 
We, we all know somebody. So easily offended. But can I just tell you, that is such an exhausting way to live. That's such an anxious way to live, to be so offended all the time. Especially when we have been forgiven such a great offense. And I'm not saying people who say offensive things shouldn't be held accountable. And I'm not saying we shouldn't stand up for justice or truth. And if you say things that are, that are cruel or wrong, that you shouldn't be held accountable. That's a whole different sermon, and we have preached that one. I'm saying we are so easy to, to offend. If you're that person that every time something comes down the line, you've got to, like, meet with somebody. It's like, hey, man, I, just, I really need to meet with you. You know, you really said this. Like, man, do we really need to meet, or could you just, like, I don't know, get over it? Because, like, God forgave your sins? Like, maybe you could forgive me because I used the wrong, like, adjective? Are you with me? Am I the only one facing this? Okay, okay, good. I want to make sure. I feel, I feel like I am a little bit right now in this moment, the only one facing this. But I feel like I'm facing this every day, of this attitude of, like, I get way too easily offended, and I offend way too easily. And yet I look at Christ, and I think, how did he preach this profound, deep truth that offended some people for real, and yet he had such profound gentleness and patience to him? It's because he walked with the confidence and the patience to not get offended, though people said brutal things, and he didn't attack other people. There was a peace and a rest upon him because he was not insecure, and he wasn't insecure because he wasn't prideful. He had every right to be. He was God, and yet he lowered himself to be with us. Can we follow that model, church? I don't need to get offended because I don't need to be insecure. You know why I don't need to be insecure? Because my value is found in Christ, in Christ alone. No one, no one tells me my value. God has given me my value, right? It comes from him. I, I don't need to be offended because no one's going to shake that. You can't change God's mind about me, and I can't change his mind about you. So what do we have to be insecure about? But if we're being honest, to be meek means to be patient, but to be meek also means to forgive. Because just because you're not offended doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, right? Like, you can be like, oh, I'm not offended by that, but, like, you're like, wow, that was super not nice. I let things roll off my back, but for some reason they circle back around. I'm like, I thought I let you go, right? <laughs> it's like, but part of being meek is just forgiving. People are messy. What do we do? Internalizers. I don't know if there's internalizers in the room or you're watching online. You know who I'm talking to. You're like calm as a duck on the surface. Anyone see you come in and out, they think nothing's wrong, but underneath you're just like, go, 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 go. With your feet, right? You're just like anxious and tense. Like one of these days you're just going to snap and kung fu kick somebody in the throat. You know what I'm talking about. You feel that in your spirit. What's really going to happen is you're going to get offended, you're going to leave, and that healing's never going to happen where it needs to happen. Because we internalize that. But can I just encourage you, man? Jesus promises us in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've already overcome the world. And he says, listen, you're, you're going to encounter hurt and pain and suffering, but listen, if you could be poor in spirit and recognize the forgiveness you've received, then it's going to be more apt. You're going to be more willing and able to forgive others as I have forgiven you. Jesus says, Matthew 6, 12, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Matthew 6, 14, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Verse 15, this one just comes in hard here. It says, but if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I think we should leave that one right there. To be meek is to be content. This is my last one. To be meek is to be content. This is the one that, if I'm going to be honest, my personality, it just wrestles up against. Uh, and, and I always have to, like, wrestle with how, how this plays out in my life. Because I'm a very driven person, and I want to win, and I want to grow, and I want to see God do amazing things, and I'm totally discontent with the way things are. Anybody like this? Like, you always, like, you're a driven person. You want more. You don't just sit around waiting for things to come. You're like, win-win. I'm going to make it happen. I want to go. Like, winners win, right? Come on right? Like, I'm out here, I'm looking at Tom Brady, I'm like, y'all can hate on Tom Brady, but winners win, <laughs> like, right? The dude has to wear Super Bowl rings on two hands, like, that's what I want, like, I, I'm not a Patriots fan, I hadn't even watched a Tampa Bay Bucks game in like 25 years till last week, but, but, but winners win, right? I didn't expect 2021 to be the year I'd see Tom Brady throw a pass to Antonio Brown and Rob Gronkowski, 
in a Tampa Bay Bucks uniform to win the Super Bowl against Pat Mahomes. But, you know, who knows? But I love, I love winning. And I love, I love wanting things and believing is how my mind is wired to want more. When, when we sit down with the school and I think about this is what we can do, I just don't think like, yeah, it'd be neat if we met that expectation. And man, I wonder how we're going to do that. I'm like, oh man, yeah, we could do this. And what if we got $25,000 donated and we could just build this thing and we step into this space of like, let's make it happen. We're going to meet on this day, this day, and this day. Here's our team. Here's our pantry team. Here's what's going to happen. Here's all this. And I love, I love that, but it also puts a little tension in my life. Because I struggle to be content. You guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I struggle. I struggle to be content with what God has given me. And that can be dangerous because the same personality that believes for more that has made a better life for my wife and myself and our family is the same discontent that gets frustrated at, at things in that same life. Right? The same guy who years ago was like, man, I just want a house. I'm going to sell my car. I'm going to ride my bike to school or my, my bike to work every day in Seattle so that I can have enough money to put a down payment. And then I'm going to use all my vacation time to remodel this house and rip it down to the studs and build it back up. All this time I've saved up to do that so I can sell it so I can make some money so I can move into this new house in Tempe. And I finally have this house that I've always wanted. And I walk in. I'm like, man, why the floor is always so messy? Anybody else live this life? We're just constantly discontent. And the question is, how do I do both? How do I be driven but also content? Because to be meek is to be content. I need to examine my life from the perspective of God's providence is my inheritance. Can I be content? This is a question. If you're like me, if you wrestle through this online in person, you're thinking the same thing. Can I be content with Christ and Christ alone? If all this rises or falls, if like Job, everything comes and goes, can I be content with Christ and Christ alone? Can I be content with Christ and Christ alone? Can I examine my life? Can I come home and sit down in my house and not think, man, I need to do this, this, and this, and this, and this week? Can I come into the church and can I just be, be content with what God has? Not lazy, but content and be like, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for what you've done. Thank you, God, for what you've done in my family. Thank you, God, that I have a roof over my head. Thank you, God, that we have a church building. Thank you, God, that we have a presence. Thank you, God, that we're open. It's like, why am I complaining about who, who's here, not here, who's coming, not coming, uh, momentum and objectives? Why am I just not like, thank you, God, for every person? And that's the state I live in now. Thank you, God, for every person that comes into this building. Thank you, God, for every person I get to meet with during the week. You guys are a blessing to my life. I'm not looking over your head to a different harvest field. I am thankful for you. I am so grateful that you are here. But it comes through examining. I think of Israel in the desert. You know, Israel was brought out of slavery, brought out of slavery, hundreds of years of slavery into the desert. God kills an army. Okay. God kills an army with an ocean, which... I've never seen, but that's a savage move. I mean, uh, we'll say he kills him with a sea, right? He kills him with water. Doesn't matter, right? Kills him waterbender style. The most powerful army in the world. And then, like, not shortly after that, Israel's like, you brought us out here to die. And he's like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you bread from the sky. It's like, okay, Awesome. Then he does, and they're like, man, we're tired of bread. He's like, all right, I'm going to send you quail. Have you tried to catch a quail? It's hard. I hunt quail. <laughs> it's hard. He says, I'm going to send you quail. After the quail and manna for a while, they're like, man, we hate this. We're tired of quail and manna. And then I think, there I am in Scripture. <laughs> there I am. How quickly the miracle I believe for becomes the grumbling in my life, right? How quickly... The miracle. How quickly that child you prayed for becomes like, oh my gosh, if you keep putting peanut butter around this house, I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> How quickly the, the school that you prayed to get into is like, man, this school, everybody in this school, blah, 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 this school, this, this, this school, that. But it's like you prayed to get into it. Now you're grumbling against it. How, how, about, how about the job that you were like, could you imagine at one point in your life you're like, ah, I just need a job. But then we grumble. How about, how about in your life you're like, man, if I could just get clean and sober. And now you're walking that, that journey, and you're like, man, how come I've not met these goals in my life, God? 
And we struggle with that, of being content in what he's done. And can I just encourage you to step back and evaluate and say, you know what, to be meek is to step into the space of being content and saying, God, you are enough. Let me ask you a question today. Is God enough for you today? Is he enough? That's a hard question to answer. It's easy to be like, amen, Jesus, yeah. Amen, Pastor. It's harder to live. It's got enough if you don't get that house. It's got enough if you don't get that job. You get that place. If you don't graduate. It's got enough. You get that scholarship. Are you content with where you are to be brought in? See, the meek are content. See, the beauty of being content is that it makes the world a lot more beautiful. Because when you are content in God, you see the world through his eyes and his perspective. And all of a sudden, you begin to see people different. Right? You begin to see others differently. You begin to see yourself differently. You begin to see your life differently. You begin to see opportunity differently. You begin to see your school differently. You begin to see your job differently. You begin to see your friends differently. When you have the perspective of Jesus Christ in your life. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You have an inheritance here if you view it from the mind of meekness. If we look through pride, you always be discontent, frustrated, complaining, grumbly. But through meekness, every day is an opportunity for the blessing of God and the inheritance that comes to the peace of Jesus Christ. When Jesus says they'll inherit the earth, he's referencing Psalm 37. Band, you can come up. Psalm 37 says, a little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. Remember, he's speaking to the Jewish people who had went through a, a period of rev revolutions and were expecting military supremacy, freedom from the land. They'd gone through exile. They'd come back. They'd gone out. There were more people currently living in the diaspora, got spread, more Jews spread around the globe than there were right there in that moment where Jesus is talking to in Jerusalem. And he speaks to them in this powerful moment, and he says, listen, those who strive, struggle, those with revenge, those with actions for themselves, those who are arrogant, those who seek to glorify themselves, listen, they're going to pass away. But those who abide in me, those who are meek, not weak, but those who are meek, those who are gentle, those who are humble, those who are content, they will remain. Why? Because they're abiding in a God who remains. They will remain because Christ remains. They will inherit my kingdom like it says in verse 1, but also they will inherit the earth. They will inherit a peace on this earth and on this life because they will begin to see it and understand it through heavenly eyes. But there is coming a day. Revelation 21, in fact, tells us, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. In verse 4, I love this. It says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Someday the suffering is going to pass. Someday. And, and I'm excited for that. I'm excited. I'm excited for the day. I'm excited for the day when there are no more abortions on the earth, when the genocide of infants is over. I am excited. I root for that day to be today. But I'm excited for the day I know it will be forever gone. I'm excited for the day that cancer is forever wiped off the earth. I'm excited for the day that racism is no more on the earth. I'm, I'm excited. Anyone else excited for that? Like, I anticipate that day. I'm not stoked on a lot of things that are going to happen in Revelation, depending on what you believe, but I'm really excited about that part. Right? No more suffering. No more pain. But until then, what do I do? Until then, how do I live? I live as Christ. What does Jesus look like? What does he look like? What does he look like in character? He's humble. He's gentle. He's patient. He's forgiving. And he's content. That's Jesus. That's who he is. 
And if we want to follow him and to walk in the life that he has come to bring us, that is what we are called to do, to receive this better blessing. Now, this is not a condition for salvation, but this is a blessing for the life that we live on this earth. This is a better blessing that we have received. He's speaking to people who have received the hope of Jesus. They, they, they've recognized him as a Savior. He's speaking to his disciples who will, who will recognize, who will be there at the resurrection, who will understand. So in our context, I'm speaking to you who understand that Christ is the hope of the world to say, listen, I'm not saying you must be meek for Jesus to love you. I'm saying because he loved you, allow it to transform you and to make you gentle and humble, to bring peace into your life. See, the meek live in a broken world, but we're not overcome by its brokenness. We live in chaos, but we're not swallowed by fear. We are persecuted, and yet we are glorified in Christ. We suffer pain and hurt, and yet we have the Holy Spirit who heals and restores and renews. The meek recognize this is not our home, and yet we rest in this life by the home and the strength and the wholeness that is the Holy Spirit. We find our rest in Him. We find our place in Him. Are you getting it here? That the meek life is a good life. It is a hard life. It is a tough life, and it requires endurance and spiritual endurance. But listen, it's the better blessing. Christ conquers with love and mercy. In an aimless world, we have immense purpose because the conquering kingdom comes through love and grace through us. So how I walk out this meekness is very simply that I love God completely. And that I love others as God loved me. Mark 12, 30 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Listen, today, here is the formula. Here is what we are being taught in the Sermon on the Mount. We must recognize our deep need for forgiveness and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the depth and riches of God's love in our life. And that reality by the power of the Holy Spirit should change everything about us. That should change how we treat others. That should change how we care for others. That should change who we care for. That should change how we treat people who treat us poorly. That should change how we honor people. That should change how we see our life, how we see our place in life. That should change everything. So the question today is, are we willing to say, Holy Spirit, listen, I yield my heart and I ask, would you please reveal to me the depth and riches of the love of God? And God, as, as you reveal that to me, would it change my heart and my life? So as I respond to others, I'm responding as you would respond in meekness, in gentleness, in humility, in patience being content in who you are in my life. Could you imagine a church full of people who are meek? Could you imagine how powerful that church is? And that's my question to you today. We're going to respond in song. I'm going to invite you, actually, would you just stand with me today? I'm going to invite you, just, just close your eyes for a moment here. We're going to respond in song. I want you to begin by just allowing the words to be spoken and sung over you today in this song. And as we sing it, I just want you, I want to encourage you to take a step and just ask the Lord, say, Holy Spirit, would you just reveal to me the depth and riches of the love of God? Maybe for some of you, you have never confessed your heart before the Lord and said, I am a sinner in need of grace. Jesus, would you be my Savior? And in this moment, you need to say, Jesus, I give you my heart and my life. I surrender it completely to you. And you need to start there. Maybe some of you, it's been a long time since you've assessed your own spiritual poverty and, and the blessing of salvation that was given to you. It's been a while since you said, wow, my, my heart has been, uh, I had a debt in my life that I could not pay. Maybe some of you, it's been a while since you just thanked the Lord for what he's done in your life. Since you said, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Thank you for giving your life for me, for dying on the cross, for rising again, for inviting me to the resurrection. And it's been a while since you've reflected. And as the band sings this truth over you, your heart needs to just praise God and say, thank you, Jesus, that you are my hope. 
And as you do that, whatever that is that you do in that, in that moment, my prayer is this very simply, that the Holy Spirit will use that to transform your heart, your mind, and your actions. That the recognition of the love of God would transform your character towards others. And that as you walk out of here, you would walk out full of the Holy Spirit. Walking in a way that honors and loves and cares humbly for others. And some of you, that's going to be a struggle. So very simply, as you're in that moment, I just invite you to say, Holy Spirit, would you transform my life? Would you transform my heart? Would you re remove some of these biases and hurts? Would you remove this attitude? Would you remove the offenses? Holy Spirit, would you restore and renew me today and transform my life? I want to pray for you this morning for the band leads. God, we recognize and respond to your love. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would lead us in responding to that love through meekness that we might receive the inheritance of peace in this life. In Jesus' name.